we're at a real moment when equity in tech education is absolutely possible. And closing the gender gap in tech is something we can do in our lifetimes. And I knew that I had to be a part of that change. We're speaking with Dr. Tarika Barrett. She is the CEO of Girls Who Code. We're an international nonprofit committed to closing the gender gap in entry-level tech jobs by 2030. And we're basically leading the movement to inspire, educate, and equip young women with the computing skills needed to take on these 21st century opportunities. And since we actually launched the organization in 2012, we've reached 450,000 girls through our in-person programming, 90,000 of whom are college and workforce age alums. And for us, by addressing this growing gender gap in tech, we're empowering our young women to really seek out the thriving, exciting careers of the future, the ones that are actually going to offer them the improved quality of life and upward mobility that we know comes with a career in tech. How did you become interested in this topic and where did where did your passion for this topic come from? I come to this space first and foremost as an educator and an activist. I've worked nearly my entire career addressing issues of equity in education. Um, but I want to go back a little further. Back in Jamaica, my grandmother actually had to drop out of school in the sixth grade so that she could work on our family's farm and support her seven younger siblings after her mom passed away. And even though her education was cut short, she she totally got it. She got that education was going to be the way that she would change, you know, the trajectory of her children. And, you know, fast forward a bit, her daughter, my mom, went on to be the first in our family to go to college and to get a graduate degree. And, you know, my mom's instilled in me the power of education, but always to go into spaces and kind of see the type of work that was necessary, but wasn't getting done. And to have the agency to believe that I could actually be the change that was needed. And, you know, I want to point to like one specific moment that was a game changer for me in terms of this work. I was at the New York City Department of Education, and I had a chance to kind of lead this portfolio responsible for kids who, frankly, many people had written off. These were students who were years behind their peers with no shot of graduating high school on time. And most of them were poor black and brown kids who looked a lot like me when I was their age. And so, you know, I had a chance to do this incredible thing. I led the team that designed and built a first of its kind high school focused on software engineering. And it was going to be a part of then Mayor Bloomberg's plan to make New York City into a tech hub. But what was hard is that it quickly became clear who this new school was actually going to be for. And everyone had it uh, in their minds that it was going to be a screen school, which means, Michael, that kids would have to test in in order to get accepted. And as an educator, I knew that if we were going to rely solely on test scores, kids of color would immediately be put at a disadvantage, right? And we know the reasons, right? Poverty, disinvestment in low-income neighborhoods, and racial bias in testing, for example. And so even though it was tremendously difficult and the risk was that we would end up turning off some of the key stakeholders committed to this school, a mashup of we had venture capitalists on one side and tech entrepreneurs on the other, I actually fought against screening and managed to rally support for the, you know, our collective decision to open the school to any student interested in programming. And what's cool about this whole <laughs> experience is that today I can say that any teen in the city interested in learning computer science has a shot of attending the Academy for Software Engineering. And for the kids who are there, 95% of them are graduating on time. 
And, you know, getting that school off the ground was one of my proudest accomplishments as an educator. But it was also this incredible lesson that you always have to kind of operate and exist at the intersection of opportunity and bravery. And you have to take these kind of chances, frankly, to disrupt the status quo wherever possible. And so I know that there's a dotted line, you know, from that experience, you know, with that building that school and being the CEO now of Girls Who Code, one of the largest organizations, girl organizations on the planet. And, you know, we're at a real moment when equity in tech education is absolutely possible. And closing the gender gap in tech is something we can do in our lifetimes. And I knew that I had to be a part of that change. So you use this term bravery, you combine bravery and opportunity. Tell us about that. When I think about even designing the school or, you know, this is before I even was a part of Girls Who Code, to be honest, when people had conjured, you know, a software engineer in their minds, they were thinking about Mark Zuckerberg or, you know, Steve Jobs. They didn't, it didn't occur to them that a software engineer could be a Black girl from Queens, for example. And so it would be possible that we could all kind of line up and say, you know, we need software engineers in New York City. Let's build a school that, you know, basically meets the needs. At no point, it would be very easy to kind of do what we've always done. And then we would have the typical outcomes we see today, which is a, you know, a field that lacks diversity in every possible way. And that's sort of pre-Girls Who Code. When you talk about the intersection of bravery and opportunity, I also think about things like the recent campaign that we just launched, for example, with, you know, mega superstar Doja Cat and the fact that now we have all of these girls and especially our black and brown girls who never thought that this amazing entertainer actually is a gamer and thinks about coding. And now we've built this microsite, which by the way, you have to check out, Michael, if you haven't, it is so amazingly cool. My um, teenage kids lost their minds when they actually got a chance to change like the, her nail color and what was happening in the actual video. It was brave for us to do that in some ways, because it's not the logical thing that you think to do that has anything to do with tech. But yet here we are disrupting culture, saying that all these girls can see themselves as technology in a way that is affirming and cool and exciting and interesting. You know, they don't have to default to this notion that a programmer is a boy, you know, wearing a hoodie in his parents' basement. So I think that for Girls Who Code, we just live in that intersection. We are constantly thinking about how to have our girls and women, especially our girls and women of color, have opportunity within the sector. And so we never say no to stepping into that space. You're you're busting stereotypes. So Tell us about the nature of this problem and give us a sense of the, the size or, or the scope of the issue. This is a problem. Gosh, it, you know, it's so pervasive, but let me start with today. So today, women make up only 26% of computing jobs, right? And the numbers are even worse for Black and Latinx women who hold only 5.3% of computing jobs, which blows your mind. Half of women in tech say they lack female role models. A third say that they have unequal growth opportunities compared to their male colleagues. And when you look at leadership positions, women make up just 5% within the tech industry. And when you talk about women of color, they're um, they're completely absent 
at the senior level with zero black or Latino women CEOs of Fortune 500 tech companies. And, you know, to the other part of your question, Michael, in terms of how big the problem is, the issue of diversity in tech is already impacting us in our daily lives. And the problem is only going to grow unless we do something now. Technology meets us at nearly every touchstone in our social and political culture. We're talking security, voting, healthcare. And, you know, I've said this many times, any chance I get, we don't get to opt out. We don't get to tell our girls or young women to opt out of tech. That's just not an option. And while we know that that kind of, um, there's this democratizing effect, right, that we've seen, we also know that there's a lot of harm that we also see at the same time. Tech, as we experience it now, is the result of the priorities of a privileged few, frankly, who share very often a very singular perspective. And so in terms of the size of the problem, the future of tech depends on a tech workforce that is far more representative of the diverse world we live in today. Why is it important to address this problem? It seems like kind of an obvious question. There's there's an injustice it needs to be addressed. But if you think about from the point of view of companies who are very short-term focused, why should companies address this issue? For companies, they serve only a small group of people because that's who has a seat at the table. So I want to give you an example from this year. Facebook ended up issuing an apology on behalf of its artificial intelligence software because you know, it asked users watching a video featuring Black men if they wanted to see more, quote unquote, videos about primates. Things like this are deeply frustrating, but not surprising, considering that most people in leadership roles in the tech industry are white and male. And the bottom line is that companies that prioritize different perspectives are going to make sure that the technology we're using every day is more representative, right, of these diverse communities and the fact that our world continues to diversify. Now, if you want to get really pragmatic, it is just simply good for business, right? And good for your overall reputation among potential customers and employees, especially as this world is changing. And another angle that I want to talk about would be also for workers, right? When you think about why this matters, tech jobs are among the fastest growing, right? And highest paying in our economy. And if you think about it, between 2019 and 2029, we're expecting growth of a half a million new jobs. And these are jobs that pay. STEM jobs pay 26% more than other careers. And, you know, I'll offer another statistic that is sort of near and dear to me. When I've talked about the wage gap for Black women compared to white men, on average, it's 63 cents to the dollar. But guess what? In the tech industry, Black women make 90 cents to the dollar. So even within that sector, we see that there can be a difference. Young women who pursue a career in tech are preparing themselves for the labor force of the future, especially what we know in terms of the trajectory that it can offer them in terms of upward mobility and quality of life. And Michael, I can go on. I can talk to you about the customers and usability and society and its impacts, if that's something that you want me to dig into. It's pretty clear as you're describing the negative impacts, or or rather we could say the, the positive impacts from being more inclusive, I'm very much interested in the roots of the problem. And I and I know some people talk about the pipeline of girls starting at a young age. Can you 
Tell us about that. Girls of Code, we are obsessed with this because we try to figure out how to reach them where they are. But the biggest drop-off we see is between the ages of 13 and 17, what we call that middle school cliff. And, you know, stereotypes about who can and should be coding get really set early on. And in fact, nearly 70% of the growth in the computing pipeline could actually come from just changing the path of the youngest girls, especially those in junior high school. And, you know, girls in school and through culture, if you ask them about men like Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg or Albert Einstein, Neil Armstrong, they'll raise their hands, right? But will they be able to do the same if we ask them about Grace Hopper or Katherine Johnson, Ada Lovelace, you know, Jean Bartik? In their minds, I mentioned this before, we're still grappling with this notion that somehow a coder is again a boy, first and foremost. And think back, Michael, to the 80s and all those you know, cool gadgets and movies that cemented that that's who codes, right? Or it's some guy, if you look at some of even recent pop culture things where it's the guy in Silicon Valley, right? That's about to launch a tech company. Before girls are even 10 years old, believe it or not, they've internalized these cultural touchstones and these, you know, internalized beliefs resonate with them, you know, throughout their entire lives. We're talking about elementary school, middle school, high school, college, and even into the workforce. So we're really up against something that has been instilled in our culture. We have a, a question on from Twitter from uh, Arsalan Khan on exactly this issue, who's asking about the role that society plays in discouraging girls from being techie. And from what you're describing, it seems like this is such a, a profoundly difficult issue and deep issue to address. I was at a recent um, speaking engagement, and when I was done, a bunch of women came up to me after, and we just started to talk about like how different it was for us kind of growing up and what we saw and what we experienced. And then one of the women in the group said, it's not just how we came up. My daughter, literally, she talked about a t-shirt that was, you know, you know, girls hate math or like some of these really pernicious things that continue to pervade. And you know, um, very often, how, how often if you think about the, the boys in your life, be it a nephew, a friend's son, where you immediately ask them a question about like how they're doing in a particular class. Have you thought about, you know, becoming a coder? How often does a little girl get that question? And when you think about the resources that she's exposed to, if you think about what kind of comes into her, the periphery of her day to day, how often is she asked about being a technologist? And at Girls Who Code, for us, not only do we, you know, immediately, like we connect with our girls through direct programming, teaching them to code, and I'll talk about that, but it's also moving hearts and minds and changing the image of what a computer scientist looks like and does. You know, the campaign I mentioned with Doja Cat is an example, or, you know, things like the Coder doll that we partnered with American Girl to be able to launch, or a book series about, um, you know, women in tech that is aimed from babies to middle schoolers. We constantly have to kind of oper like operate in a way that really pushes back against these stereotypes. And we are making progress. When we think about what's on TV now or what we can stream, it is a lot more likely to see a girl who's a coder now than it was. And we are happy to take credit <laughs> for a lot of that. I would imagine that at those early ages, the level of effort that's required to make an impact because it's such a pervasive 
social way of thinking, way of being, uh, is it's much more difficult to, to make an impact there as opposed to later when, uh, when these girls grow up to be women and they're trying to make inroads in their careers. Is, is that a correct assumption or no? No, I think that one is tricky because my understanding and what we've seen is that once girls are exposed to computer science, they kind of just take to it like wildfire. I think what starts to you know, happen in that middle school cliff, it's when, you know, boys and their interest starts to peak, that girls and their, in, like, it's easy for them to get turned off because they don't see themselves or to have, you know, a teacher or educator that doesn't really um, push them to be brave and not perfect, right? Like we talk, uh, my predecessor, Rashma Sajani talks about the fact that uh, in our classrooms, inevitably during the summer programming, um, girls would be writing lines of code and the instructor at the end of the session would walk around and there'd be at least one girl with a blank screen. And when they'd hit undo a few times, they would see that that girl had actually come really close to writing the correct line of code. But because it wasn't perfect, because it wasn't completely right, she'd erased the entire thing. And so we have learned how to teach our girls that you know they can be resilient, they don't have to be perfect, they can just slide over the finish line, you know, with rips in their jeans, leaves in their hair. They don't have to prove anything. And when, you know, we've become really, really experts in teaching girls computer science, which is so much about sisterhood, bravery, resilience, and other traits, just as much as it is Python, JavaScript, CSS, or HTML. So you're teaching the underlying social skills and survival skills, as opposed to just the, you know, here's how to code. Absolutely, because they go hand in hand. When you think about what our young women face when they, you know, take on that first job in tech, it's that sisterhood that they lean on. It's that, you know, that bravery, because even in 2021, they continue to come up against you know, not only stereotypes, actual practice that kind of tells them that they don't belong here, or they see it in ways that, you know, manifest in not seeing any women, right? Or women who look like me in the senior ranks of leadership. So we do do that in terms of our um, instruction with girls, as well as our culture campaigns, because we know that it's absolutely vital to the outcomes we want to see in terms of closing the gender gap in tech. We have uh, another question from LinkedIn, and this is from Simone Jo Moore asks, has being remote through COVID rather than uh, working face-to-face in the office made it easier for women in tech to, gra- to gain ground? I would argue that we're still learning about that. I Intuitively, I would imagine that there's some aspects of that in terms of flexibility, right? And synchronous and asynchronous work, which are critical in terms of what women need and what we are coming to understand has been absent in terms of um, creating an environment where women can be successful. I think it doesn't stand alone. Like I think there are lots of policies that need to be in place, frankly, just to support women. You know, um, we lost so many women during the pandemic in the workforce because there were no safety nets, frankly, and to, to catch them. And it exposed um, levels of inequity in terms of treatment and the fact that women are primary caregivers and even in terms of salary and what women get paid, but it didn't position them to make 
the choice that would be their work. If you're going to choose between family and your job, um, women, you know, made the choices they had to make. And it, we saw that mass exodus from the workforce as a result. So, you know, what's interesting about that question is that we continue to learn about what it is about, you know, a virtual world that can benefit women. I'm going to guess that it's the, you know, ability to be asynchronous and some of the other flexibility that it allows for. That's a plus. But I think similarly, the other side of the coin is, are these women gaining access to leadership? Like, are what does mentorship and, you know, professional development look like in this context? We're all grappling with how to keep, you know, a vibrant culture alive at our organizations during this time. So I think it's complicated, but I love that question. We've been talking just now about uh, women in their careers as opposed to younger girls. And let's continue with that theme. In the 70s and 80s, quite a number of women entered STEM careers. Some have been very successful. We've had some amazingly successful women as guests here on CXO Talk. And so given this, why do we have this underrepresentation and these challenges that women still face today in technology, adult women? It's clear that tech companies, you know, need diversity of perspectives to function effectively, but we see this persistent problem that they're failing to attract and retain diverse talent. Um, So I want to cite a recent study by Girls Who Code and Accenture that found that half of women in tech roles actually leave by the age of 35. And the reason they cite is because they felt that their workplace was absolutely inhospitable to women or they lacked more female role models, which I've mentioned. We've also seen that this lack of representation is just alienating to young people starting with the hiring process. Girls Who Code did a study in 2019 And it showed that half of the young women applying for tech internships either had a negative experience or knew someone who did. And we're talking, Michael, about experiences that range from sexist and racist comments, a lack of representation, and in some cases, blatant harassment. Some of the young women that we surveyed went through five to 10 rounds of interviews without ever seeing a single woman or a woman of color. And when you talk about a lack of, you know, retention of the scale paired with a failure to attract diverse tech talent, it's going to fuel the gender gap. So, so much of this is the mix that gets to where we are right now. What can be done about this? What is what is holding women back at this more senior level of their careers? And what can we do about it? If we can make our workplaces, work cultures more inclusive, we could actually increase the number of women working in tech by 3 million. (laughs) It blows your mind to just think about that number. At Girls Who Code, we try to encourage our partners and certainly, you know, companies writ large to look deeply at their own practices and interrogate what they're doing that might be alienating young people and especially young men and people of color or what they're doing to prevent them from being hired in the first place. Every company is different, right? So there's no like magical blueprint for this type of process. But at the very least, we hope companies have discussions about work culture. What we're really asking is that people keep an open mind, redefining what they see as an appealing hiring candidate and assessing promotion practices that continue to keep women and women of color out of leadership positions. And I want to say and acknowledge that I know this kind of self-reflection is difficult, right? But it's also the difference. It can be the difference between an all white male office or, 
you know, and an office that you know, more accurately reflects the world that we're living in today. And, you know, another note on this that's important, if you kind of take on <laughs> systemic racism and sexism, the root cause of a lack of diversity in tech, it will naturally be met with resistance. But at the same time, we all have to be deeply committed to persisting because we know that we stand to gain, you know, if we can actually bring more diversity into the tech industry. When you were talking earlier about uh, girls, you mentioned helping prepare them for from a, a social standpoint to understand the environment, that it was beyond just technology. Does this come into play as well for uh, people entering the workforce as adults, women entering the workforce as adults? I think it does. And when you think about it, women have to be kind of prepared and aware, and we do this with our community, to encounter, um, you know, unfortunately, a sector that isn't quite ready for them, <laughs> let's put it that way, and that we're asking them to also kind of step into that intersection of bravery and opportunity and know that they can also be the change they want to see. We don't want to put all the pressure on marginalized people to kind of change their environment. But we also encourage women, especially our young women, when this is their first kind of entry-level job, to lean on that sisterhood, to seek out the mentorship and support that could be vital in terms of supporting them in, in their retention within the sector. A lot of it is eyes wide open. A lot of it is believing that they absolutely have the content knowledge and are resilient enough to have a seat at the table. Um, but we don't sugarcoat it and pretend as though they aren't going into, you know, frankly, an environment that is not always, you know, frankly, has been proven to, if you think about the news recently and, and consistently, that women are not treated in the ways that they should be within the industry. Now, you use this term mentorship. So can you elaborate on that and the importance and maybe offer advice to women uh, on what they can do themselves? Mentorship is near and dear to me. My mom actually founded the first ever mentorship organization in Jamaica, Kingston, Jamaica. And prior to Girls Who Code, I you know, helped lead a mentoring organization. And even here at Girls Who Code, we have a program um, where we pair our you know, college-age young women with women in tech because we think those you know, sort of closer to them, not quite near peer, but these role models are you know, absolutely important. And I'm heartened to hear that the women that you've had on your show totally get it in terms of knowing how critical it can be for young women to go into a space where they don't see a lot of folks who look like them and to know that there's a, a female leader sort of look, keeping an eye out, you know, willing to sit and talk about their own journey. But as I said, Michael, we put a lot of the burden to succeed in the workplace, right? Still on these young women and on marginalized people. And how do we kind of get the workplaces to still be more conducive to success? And, you know, the reason behind the gender gap in tech isn't the women themselves, right? If you're a woman or someone from an underrepresented background in tech and you manage to get into college and graduate with a technical degree, you get noticed by hiring managers and get hired, you already have everything, right? You, you're armed with the qualities and tools that you need to succeed. Instead, we kind of need companies to prioritize the things that keep women there, pay equity, be mindful of how burnout tends to disproportionately impact women 
and, you know, adjust workloads, create pathways, right. For, you know, success. And, you know, if I were to offer any advice for women in the tech workforce, I would say, do your research when job hunting, reach out to colleagues and discuss the pros and cons of joining a particular company. Ask early about vacation, family leave, caregiving, you know, policies. And, you know, this is a part of this. Find your male allies willing to be open about their salaries, right? So that you can ensure that you're being paid fairly. And, you know, to where the question started, I encourage women to seek out mentors and role models. There's a reason that sisterhood is one of the core values in our programming, you know, and our definition of sisterhood is expansive. It centers girls, women, non-binary, femme, female identifying people. It includes all of our allies. And we know that only as a collective can we kind of create these equitable and inclusive environments. And, you know, I would say to these young women and or women who are further along in their careers, look for your sisterhood wherever you go, you know, find your people, lean on each other. You know, we all deserve to be lifted up in some way. And we have to kind of continue to work as a collective to help transform these companies as hard as that is. And we have a question from LinkedIn on this point with from Simone Jomore again, who asks, how do we engage males and other genders in this program to support women in STEM and technology? Our male allies are so critical in this because if you think about who has power and who has influence within these, you know, companies, it's very much, you know, at this juncture, predominantly white males. And so much of it is also kind of, you know, I talk about this a lot because I think that I truly believe that folks want to do better and that it's about shifting thinking. It's about kind of having people recognize these inherent biases. And for these allies, a lot of it is kind of opening their eyes to the fact that, you know, not so simple things like treating, you know, like hiring and promotions as, you know, being mostly about filling diversity quotas, right? Um, Being more committed in terms of male allies, in terms of creating real systems of support that can boost retention. You know, we know how critical it is for young people to feel supported in their first job and to get how they understand and frame their future, right? Just based on these early years. And the last thing we want is for our young people and especially young women to become so jaded with the industry that they opt out. Our male allies have a big role to play here in terms of encouraging girls to get interested in tech, getting young people to major in computer science, seeking out the tech jobs, just the same way that as women, we are doing this. You know, we had this incredible hiring summit. When the pandemic hit, we surveyed our community and our alums, you know, for those that answered, 30% of them had lost their internships. And for our seniors, 40% of them had lost their full-time employment um, offers. We kind of sprung into motion and decided we were going to launch a hiring summit. We did one in January and then another one in September. And for our first hiring summit, we hired, you know, we had a bunch of companies come. It was amazing. It was wonderful. One of these companies hired 17 young women. And that might seem small to folks who are listening, but it meant everything to those young women. And not only did they hire them, they created this incredible internal community of support program for them. You asked a male ally question. This is the work. This, These are the kinds of things that if we commit to doing 
can transform the sector. Great question now from Elizabeth Shaw. Really, really good question. What do you see is the mix of solutions in areas like public policy, corporate social responsibility, HR policy, women who have, quote unquote, made it? How does, how does this mix come together? We are so lucky as a nonprofit. We work with all these corporate partners who support our work. And of course, they have their own self-interest. They want that pipeline to be more diverse. And we, we share that. I love the question because, you know, it's coming at it from like a lot of different angles. Michael, I mentioned that the fallout that we're seeing from COVID, right, is a result of many women and others from historically underrepresented backgrounds having to make the impossible decision between their careers and their families. From a policy perspective, women are not going to magically not be the caregivers, right? We have to suddenly start to think about the resources that actually support them with that responsibility. So universal childcare, paid parental leave, flexible and asynchronous work hours, increasing salaries, right? So women don't have to make that choice. So that's like one slice of it. When you think about, um, so that's within the company, certainly we know that quite a bit is happening out there, you know, at the government level. I'm super proud of our founder, Reshma, who's launched the Marshall Plan for Moms and the work that advocacy she's doing there. But even when you think about corporate social responsibility and what we should be paying attention to, you know, that's why we ask folks to support Girls Who Code programs like ours, where we're trying to move the needle and ensure that we're not just, right now, we're kind of obsessed with workforce <laughs> because we have these 90,000 alums about to, you know, cement these jobs into tech, fingers crossed. But guess what? We've built this pipeline of 450,000 girls. We can't take our eye off of that. And so continue to, continuing to invest in ways that are disruptive, that continue to ensure that girls, you know, are like first in line. That's really critical. And each of you work or lead companies where you make these choices around where you, you know, put your dollars. And I would argue that aligning that in a really critical way that matches your values and where you're committed to moving the needle is essential. So this issue is one that resonates for you deeply that I would hope that the company, you know, that you lead would be at the forefront of thinking about how to sort of leverage, you know, any funding to ensure that we're tackling this problem. Because when, so folks who don't know about Girls Who Code in terms of our programmatic work, because I realize we haven't really dug into that, we launched our flagship was, you know, 20 girls like in a classroom you know, borrowed classroom, <laughs> learning how to code, you know, a summer, you know, fast forward, we this past summer, basically taught almost 6,000 girls over the summer. And when before it was virtual, it was 1600 girls and 80 corporate partners across the country. And while the pandemic has given us no gifts, it really pushed us to think about growth and scale in a completely different way. And with that, we've reached even more girls in rural areas and places we never thought we could with our virtual programming. And so, you know, that work is really important. We also have free after-school clubs where girls, you know, get their interests activated. And, you know, beyond that, I mentioned the hiring summit. We also have a work prep program and our college loops on campus. If you're interested in supporting girls and young women at any stage of the pipeline, we have programs that contemplate that because it is a leaky pipeline. And as I mentioned, it's easy for our girls to kind of drop out 
at any point in that journey. And so really getting folks to support this work is vital. So for parents of girls who are listening, men, men and women who are listening and have girls, what advice do you have for them? We have to tell our little girls that women do this, right? That there are people who look like them, who've been pioneers in the tech industry. Um, I think we also have to kind of appeal parents, you want your daughters to have viable employment and be at the forefront of the careers that are shaping our culture and our future. Um, I've mentioned that, you know, CS is one of the fastest growing professions in the country and also among the highest paying. I would also urge our parents and teachers to change the narrative of what a career in tech might look like. You know, right now we are inundated with stories about major companies that are, frankly, just to be candid, perpetuating the stark inequalities that exist, right, for profit. Tech leaders, typically men, ego-driven wasting all manner of resources on their own whims, just to speak very, I know Michael's holding his head, but it's true. These stories have created a binary that we don't want our girls to buy into, that you either have to have a career in tech that makes you money, or you have to have a career in tech that you love that helps your community. Nothing could be further from the truth. We need our girls and young women to know that they can do good in the world and find joy, not in spite of their career in tech, but because of it. And we did a recent campaign called Make That Change. We featured real women in STEM. We talked about how they were using their tech skills to empower themselves while bettering their communities. They looked amazing. They were fabulous. It was engaging. And it gave our girls another set of images to contemplate that really moved away from a binary that has become deeply pervasive in our culture. Well, we have a question from Isabella Wang on LinkedIn, and she asks, do you think coding is a must-need skill for individuals today, kids growing up? I think it's not that they have to be some deep Python user or you know, know all of these languages. I think they want to understand the concepts. They want to understand um, it's frankly a way of thinking. Computational thinking is absolutely critical. And I think that exposure, especially for our girls, allows them to not feel that imposter syndrome when they're in spaces. And we also know that coding is absolutely central to every company, not just tech companies. And so I think that baseline knowledge is actually really helpful. What advice or requests do you have for senior level women who have totally made it? How can they support this cause? I think about my own leadership transition where I had this incredible, you know, woman of color ask me to take the reins of this, you know, dynamic organization that is frankly changing our world. For these leaders, I would really push them to think about how they can similarly uplift other women, you know, in their companies, in their sector to push for things like a cohort model where they don't just hire one black or brown person, but rather think about what it would mean to bring a cohort of young, dynamic women into the company to not only transform culture, but improve the quality of every product that they'll build. I think these women are in those seats because they are brilliant and they you know, are empowered. There has never been a better time for them to leverage that power and have a phenomenal impact. And so I encourage them to you know, build that sisterhood within their individual companies. What about advice for senior level men? in these organizations, these organizations being technology companies, the people running these organizations? 
I had the privilege of going to the White House for a conference on cybersecurity, and I had the richest conversations with CEOs about, you know, this very issue, talent and hiring. I was struck by the fact that these most senior leaders are so disconnected from the people who actually decide who comes into their company. And if they begin to have the kinds of conversations and make it clear that they are issuing, frankly, a point of view and a mandate around diversifying the culture of their organization and the folks who get to come in through those doors, I promise you that we will see the gender gap close. But I think it's that disconnect, their lack of awareness of how their teams operationalize (laughs) these notions of diversity. Until they unpack that, they won't see the barriers that are systemic, the overabundance on credentialing, and the ways in which we keep marginalized people out systematically based on something that seems you know, based on meritocracy, which is a falsehood. So I do think if these leaders can dig in, they're going to be surprised at what impact they can have. What advice do you have for people inside an organization, in the middle levels of an organization, whether it's HR or people uh, hiring for projects or what have you, what advice or what requests do you have for them? Continue to seek out folks who, you know, support the work you're doing, especially if it's one that, you know, is a laser-like focus on talent and diversifying who's at the company. I, you know, don't want to put too much stock into affinity groups because I think very often, like, these are important groups, but do they have the leadership and the support from the rest of the company is always a question that I have. I think it's, again, where we started, Michael, that intersection of bravery and opportunity, that if there are opportunities to speak up, to lead, to mentor, Take it because it's not about always some big, gigantic change that you're making at a company. But if you literally seek out a young woman, (laughs) you know, who's working with you to really kind of show them the ropes, give them a sense of what, pull the curtain back a little bit, that can be transformative for that young person. And so I never want to minimize the small and not so small things that people do every day to change the culture of their companies. What advice do you have for folks who say, yes, I want to hire women for specific roles, but we can't find, we can't find qualified people. I would say that's not true. (laughs) So you can't tell me we've taught like, you know, 450,000 girls to code. I think you have to ask yourself, if you continue to hire white men for the same jobs, what are the questions you're asking? Are they deeply dependent on the social capital of those men? Are you already assuming that like the the kinds of technical interview questions that are being asked, I invite you to turn all of those notions on their head and think about the core qualities, the bravery and resilience that these young women, half of the ones we serve from historically marginalized groups who are juggling caregiving responsibilities, sometimes a full course load, work, all manner of things, and yet are successful in spite of it. Those are the traits and qualities that you want represented at your company and perhaps your standard practices, you know, that continue to ensure that only a certain group of folks get a chance to be there. That's the problem. Not that there aren't young women out there for these jobs. Okay. Dr. Tarika Barrett, thank you so much for being here and sharing your passion about this very important cause and teaching us a lot. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. A pleasure. Thank you, Michael. Everybody. Thank you for watching, especially those folks who ask such great questions on Twitter and LinkedIn. Now, before you go, please 
subscribe to our YouTube channel, hit the subscribe button at the top of our website so we can send you our mailing list, tell a friend, and check out CXOTalk.com and come back. We will have great shows coming up, so we'll see you, see you again next time. Have a great day, everybody.